Chapter Sixteen of Wise and Otherwise. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wise and Otherwise by Pansy. Chapter Sixteen. He giveth wisdom unto the wise. Carrying out this thought of her one-word motto through the singing of the closing hymn, which, by the way, was a funeral one in honor of Paul's eighteen hundred years in heaven. Servant of God, well done. Rest from thy loved employ. Dell cast about in her mind for the particular form that her whatsoever should take that day. There was a young man in the mill, one in whom she knew Jim Forbes was deeply interested. He had asked her weeks ago to pray for that young man, and she remembered with a blush of shame in what a fitful, uncertain way she had done so, and not a word had she ever spoken to him about this great one thing, although he occupied Mr. Sale's seat exactly behind them. During the benediction, her heart put up a prayer for strength and help, for a word in season to speak to John Howland, for she had quite resolved upon trying to speak to him. Full of this thought, she turned to find him the moment the amen was spoken. She had her sentence ready. The text had so impressed her that she felt like using its words instead of her own. She wanted to say something very simple and brief, yet something that would evince her earnest interest in his welfare. John, she meant to say, won't you try to find this one thing? Behold, no John Howland was there. Intent upon her errand, she had almost spoken his name before she had discovered that he was not in his accustomed place. Instead, she came face to face with Mr. Merrill, a young man whom she knew but slightly, a confidential clerk in one of the large mercantile houses. A very well-educated, very well-dressed, very unexceptionable young man, quite unlike John Howland. Instinctively, she held out her hand to him, as she had meant to do to John. As this was an unexpected courtesy, he received it with heightened color and marked pleasure. Then, during the brief conversation that followed, Dell's heart and conscience kept up an undercurrent after this wise. Mr. Merrill is not a Christian. His soul is as precious as John Howland's. Why should I not speak my little word to him? But I am so very slightly acquainted with him." What of that? I am sufficiently acquainted to ask after the health of his body. I have just done so. Is the soul of less importance? It will seem so very strange to him. But that will do no harm. I am not trying for what people will think of me. Perhaps he will think I am trying to interest him in myself, and take this method. How very absurd! Is it so strange a thing for a Christian to earnestly desire the conversion of a soul? If it is, then its strangeness should be my shame." Oh, I wish John Howland were here. I wonder where he is. My heart was set on speaking just a word to him today. Perhaps my Savior has determined that Mr. Merrill should be my opportunity today. Anyway, he is certainly my whatsoever. He is the only one near me who is not a professor of religion. Very rapidly these thoughts traveled through her brain. This conversation was carried on while she was saying with her lips, as they walked down the aisle, Yes, it was a beautiful day. Yes, she thought the congregation unusually large. No, she did not like the anthem. She thought it too operatic in style to be suited to a church service. Almost at the door. In another moment he would have made his parting bow, and her whatsoever would be left undone. This was the undercurrent again. Her lips were in the midst of the sentence, I do not know just how long I shall remain in Newton. She broke off the word just, and said suddenly, Mr. Merrill, in a tone of such unmistakable earnestness and eagerness that he waited, wondering much, after he had pronounced his bland, encouraging, well? 
Did you notice the text particularly today? The text? Let me see. Yes, I recall it. The theme was very finely handled, was it not? There was no answer to this question. Instead, Dell said in lowered tones, but with that unmistakable ring of sincere, heartfelt earnestness about them, Well, do you know I wish with all my heart that you would seek after that one thing? Mr. Merrill was unutterably astonished. He had been to a Christian church Sabbath after Sabbath for years and years, yet this was actually the first time since his boyhood that he had any recollection of a personal address upon this subject. Christian young ladies he was acquainted with by the score. He often walked to the corner, and sometimes further with them, carrying their hymn-books or parasols, if the day chanced to be cloudy, and they had proper decorous conversation together about the fine tones of Mr. Tresevant's voice, or, what an excellent reader he was, or, how appropriate his sermon was to this particular time of year, or, what an exclusively solemn anthem the choir opened with this morning, but never once, Mr. Merrill, are you a Christian, or, won't you be a Christian? Never, certainly, a tremulously earnest, I wish with all my heart that you would seek after the one thing. Mr. Merrill's conversational powers were good. It was a most unnatural thing for him to hesitate over a reply, or fail of a prompt and proper wording in what he wished to say. But this particular occasion was unexpected and overwhelming. He looked at the earnest, inquiring eyes raised to his, and remained absolutely silent. He did not even say good morning as they reached the outer door, and Dell turned toward the Sabbath school room. He just simply lifted his hat and bowed low, and with unusual gravity. Well, Dell said, looking after him for a moment, he is offended, I think. Perhaps it isn't strange. I am very abrupt. If I could do things as Abby can, I believe I am always doing what poor Jim says of himself, making a muddle. Ah, now, I don't mean to carry my own burdens today. I said my word. I believe my master waited for me to say it. If I blundered in the manner, I am sorry, and will ask him to make my manner of no moment, and to use the word to his glory. Then, forgetting the things which are behind, surely I may forget the blunders, too, after I have asked the Lord to blot them out. It would be foolish to keep piling them up before me, for my heart to gaze at after that. Be it particularly remembered that after this attempt at doing, Dell kept to her own room and prayed much for Mr. Merrill, all that day. For, said she, if faith without works is dead, surely works without faith must be also. Why, where is Dell? Mr. Sales asked suddenly, on the following Tuesday evening, pausing in the midst of conversation as he suddenly remembered that he had been at home for an hour and had not seen that member of the household. She is in her room and has been all the afternoon, his wife answered. I went up to call on her once, but she was so exceedingly quiet that I concluded she was either writing or asleep, and did not disturb her. The afternoon mail brought her very bulky letters, and I fancy she has been particularly engaged. But she has been hermit long enough. I've half a mind to call her. At which point Dell came in. We were just about to disband and go in search of you, Mr. Sale said, rising to give her a seat. Have you found the solitude of your room especially delightful, or has it been peopled with unseen forms? This in a gay, half-bantering tone. Then gravely, as he caught a glimpse of her face, is anything the matter, Dell? Nothing so very serious, and yet nothing very cheering, Dell said, trying to laugh, 
but looking rather pale and worn. If you will read aloud this letter from Uncle Edward, you will know all about it at once, and better than I can tell you. Mr. Sayles took the letter somewhat hesitatingly, and Dell slipped into a quiet corner and shaded her eyes from the light. Thus the letter ran. Boston, August 21, 18-something. Dear child, isn't your visit rather lengthy? It seems long to us since you went away. Still, I am glad that you are away from Boston during the heated term, and that you are with friends whom, having not seen, we love. Your Aunt Laura says that Abby of yours is in every way delightful. She is evidently a woman of sense, interpolated Mr. Sayles, without raising his eyes, and in precisely the same tone of voice as that in which he was reading. Remember me to Mr. Sayles, and tell him I look forward joyfully to the pleasure of long pleasant hours spent with him when we meet in heaven. I met your class for half an hour after school last Sabbath. There were many inquiries after you. Thomas Jones bade me tell you when I wrote that he had fully decided for Christ, and Henry Wilson, true to his more diffident nature, murmured low, I think, I am not perfectly sure, but I think you may say the same for me. Both these lads took part in our young people's meeting last evening, and both referred to their dear teacher as being instrumental in leading their feet into this way. They are both thoroughly in earnest. The king has greatly honored you, dear child. You will be glad to hear that I also have my crumb of encouragement. My poor old Jonas, after many stumblings back into the mire of drunkenness and misery, has at last had his feet firmly planted on the rock of ages. Joy to him henceforth, so I firmly believe. Isn't it a blessed religion? Isn't he a blessed Savior, who from his heights in glory can reach down a loving, pitying, helping hand even to such as Jonas, and raise him up? What news concerning your Jenny Adams? Your Aunt Laura's class have been remembering her this week. We are waiting for the privilege of rejoicing with you over another name in the book of life. I am glad, but not surprised, to hear of young Forbes's steady progress and successes. The Lord takes care of his own. My thoughts have been much on that verse during this past week. The Lord knoweth him that are his. Aye, he certainly does. Can anything be more comforting, especially when we remember it in the light of all the wonderful and glorious promises that come trooping forward for those who are his children? Oh, by the way, Mr. Henderson has taken his place permanently in the Sunday school and prayer meeting. It is a triumph over Satan that it seems to me must startle him. The contest has been long and fierce, but the Lord has power to save. And now, dear child, that all the good and pleasant things are told, I have something not so pleasant as we view these things. It is precious to me to remember that the dear Lord knows and has arranged the apparently uncomfortable things of this life, with the same loving kindness that ordered the manifest blessings. To be brief and plain, then. Yesterday, you know, I was called a millionaire. Today I am a poor man, so suddenly do our changes come to us. You will wish to know all the details, but the story is so intricate that I would fain leave it until we can talk it over face to face. It is not an unusual experience. Many a man has been called upon to pass through it. The bitter drop in the cup is that one man in whom we placed the most important trust has been tempted and has fallen. That is poor Warner. I know this will grieve you to the heart, as well as surprise you greatly, even as it has us. But remember, dear child, that his provocation was very great, and we tempted him perhaps more than mortal could endure. You know he had charge of our immense business, and we had unlimited confidence in him. 
I have neither space nor heart in which to tell you the man's sad, pitiful story. But I know your Christian charity will try to think the best of him, and that you will not cease to pray for him and his poor young wife. About our plans, of course we yield up everything and begin life afresh. You will wonder at the want of foresight which placed so heavy a business in the hands of one man, but there are other complications that have been suffered for some good wise reason unknown to us to come upon us at the same time, so that it is not all poor Warner's fault. Fire and flood and shipwreck have come upon us in the last two months. None of these could he help. God only knows how I pity him. Only think, Dell, what his burden is compared with ours. Well, to return to ourselves again, we have already engaged good, comfortable board, pretty well uptown, and your Aunt Laura is selecting from the household the necessary articles to take with us. We are not in absolute poverty, you understand, such as has overwhelmed many a family during the last trying year. But we have where to lay our heads, and wherewithal to be clothed. The businessmen of the city have come grandly to my help, offering to do many noble things, but your aunt and I both judged it the nearest right to bear the burden so far as we could alone. At the same time, it has been blessed to have our friends rally around us with such ready hearts and hands. And now, my dear daughter, I do not know that I need waste time in words in saying to you what you thoroughly know and feel, that our home is as much your home as ever, not so pretty in its outward adorning, but just as rich in its wealth of love. If I were writing to one less used to life and less acquainted with her uncle, I should have to be more careful, more explicit in my explanations. But I am glad to remember that you will understand me. Remember, I have strong arms and a steady brain, and therefore am thoroughly prepared for every special strain. There will be much to talk over with you when you come. I think I know your heart well enough to know it will be soon. We seem to be in special need of you. Your Aunt Laura said today that she missed you at every turn. I hope this news will reach you through me instead of through the papers. It isn't pleasant to hear of personal matters through a third party. There is more to say, but time and space will permit only this. Keep up a brave heart, daughter. Do not allow yourself to be sorrowful over much. Remember that, God is God, my darling, of the night as well as the day, and we feel and know that we can go wherever he leads the way. If you feel like coming before a letter can reach us, telegraph that I may meet you. I need not exhort you to pray much during these first hours of surprise. It is a blessed help. Your Aunt Laura and I have felt it in all its fullness. She will add a line to this lengthy letter. As ever, Uncle Edward. P.S. Dear darling child, Edward has said it all, and more, too. What a long letter! Come home, dear, as soon as you can consistently. We need you very much. In all our bewilderment over the suddenness of the trial, we have found time to rejoice with heartfelt joy over the thought that this is only money, not dishonor, to overwhelm us. Poor Mrs. Warner, that indeed must be hard to bear. Not death, our precious circle is unbroken, so our prayers are still thanksgiving. Edward is calling, I must go. Good night, darling. Aunt Laura. End of chapter 16. Recording by Tricia G.